0: Uh, When I was teaching back in the 1960s, I kept hearing that this was the brightest and best generation that we'd had, and I kept saying, they don't seem to be enrolling in my courses. A great deal of time and energy uh, are spent on things which are non-academic subjects. What they tend to do is to try to alienate the child from the parent. The tragedy is that these kids have no conception of thinking. What's so ironic is the school is failing so miserably in what they're paid to do that they should take on this role of being social philosophers. Part of the degeneration of uh, morals has been helped out by the kind of nonsense they're taught in the schools. We live in western civilization that's why you ought to study it now if you have time left over to study other things fine but to talk about why do we study western civilization rather than other civilizations you might as well ask why do we study the earth instead of other planets and other galaxies
1: dr soul is the uh, situation going to get even worse before it starts getting better
2: absolutely Welcome to episode 14 of the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. I'm your host, Alan Woolen. I'd like to spend the next few episodes taking a deep dive into Sowell's 1993 book called Inside American Education. This book was written 29 years ago, and yet it reads as if it had just been released yesterday. All the problems in the American education system which Sowell pointed out in that book have not only continued to this day, but seem to have gotten even worse. In this episode, I'm going to try something new. I'm going to play an interview with Thomas Sowell, and I'm going to pause the interview at key points to give you my comments about what was discussed up to that point. My goal in doing this is twofold. Firstly, I'm hoping that listening to this episode will simulate listening to an old Sowell interview and having someone to discuss it with. That someone will be me. Secondly, I'll be reflecting on what Sowell said from the perspective of someone hearing it in the year 2022, while everything that was said comes from the year 1993, 29 years ago. I predict you are going to be very surprised maybe even bamboozled, that so many issues we are debating today, as if they are brand new discoveries of our generation, were already being hotly contested back then. It's as if we as a society have made absolutely no progress in those three decades. The interview I am drawing upon can be found on YouTube, and I'll put a link in the show notes to the full video interview, so you can watch it if you like. I encourage you to do so. It's a fabulous interview. Let me put this interview in the context of Sowell's full career. Inside American Education was Sowell's 17th book, and he did this television interview as part of a media tour to promote sales of that book. Since the book came out, he has published 27 more books. So Sowell was only 39% of the way into his full writing career at the time, and some of his best work was yet to come. His interviewer was Diane Rehm, a well-known and longtime radio personality who has interviewed many notable figures for national public radio, including Barack Obama, Bill and Hillary Clinton, Fred Rogers, John McCain, and many others. I won't say that much more about Diane Rame here, except to say that I think she did a pretty good job of interviewing Sowell and gave him ample opportunity to present the full thesis of his book in a long-form interview. In my opinion, the best parts of this interview are the random people who called into the show to sometimes agree and other times disagree with Sowell. His responses are always spectacular and some are even instant classics of verbal and intellectual sparring. Get ready to laugh, to cheer, and to once again experience the genius of Thomas Sowell. Here's the first clip.
1: Good morning and welcome back to the Diane Ream Show on 88.5 FM. The U.S. education system has many critics who see a continuing deterioration in our schools, Thomas Sowell, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, is one of those. As the older generation of teachers and professors leave, he says, new trends and counterproductive fads, fashions, and dogmas of American education will become the dominant influence and shape the generations to come. In short, he argues, American schools are turning out students who are not intellectually incompetent, but also morally confused, emotionally alienated, and socially maladjusted. The problem is not merely that Johnny can't read or even that Johnny can't think. Johnny doesn't know what thinking is, says Doctor Sowell, because thinking is so often confused with feeling in many public schools. Doctor Sowell has written a new book. It's called Inside American Education, The Decline, The Deception The dogmas. You can join us. Call us between now and 12 noon, 885 8850. Good morning to you, sir. It's good to have you here.
0: Thank you very much.
1: What's going on here seems rather curious in the face of rising grades and uh, elevated expectations about uh, schools' abilities to perform and students' academic achievement.
0: Yes. the Back in uh, 1966, uh, there were about twice as many C's as A's given out in the, uh, high, in the high, in public schools in the United States. By the late 70s, there were twice as many A's as C's. So you have this long period during which all sorts of test scores are going down. At this very same time, grades are going up.
1: Is that going on at both the elementary, secondary yes. level, and college at, level? At the
0: college level, mm-hmm. uh, during the entire decade of the nineteen eighties, uh, the percentage of A's at Yale University never fell below forty percent.
1: So you're saying there's uh, there's a great inflation going on, uh, and there are declining test yes. scores. Yes.
0: And this is, this is part of the deception, because if people knew exactly what was happening, I don't think the test scores could have kept going down as long as they did. But everyone was told, they say, saw the wonderful grades their kids were bringing home. They were told glowing things. Uh, when I was teaching back in the 1960s, I kept hearing that this was the brightest and best generation that we'd had, and I kept saying, they don't seem to be enrolling in my courses. Uh, and it was only into in the, in well into the 70s, before the word came out, that the data showed just the opposite of what the educators were saying.
1: And now it would seem that a good many educators are in agreement with you when they talk about the serious straits that our American schools are in.
0: They agree in in the sense only that this kind of talk gets them more money. Uh, And, in fact, that's used as the biggest reason why we need more money. But in point of fact, uh, the uh, money spent on education was rising by leaps and bounds throughout the entire period during which the test scores were going down. Uh, Somewhere in the early 80s, there was a a leveling off and a few little uh, uh, rises, but we have never come close to where we were in 1963.
2: So in this introductory clip, Sowell brings up three key points. Number one, student test scores had been steadily declining since 1963, while at the same time, school grades had been steadily rising. Number two, Sowell makes the claim that grade inflation was some type of deliberate attempt made by educators to mask the declining educational outcomes which were occurring. And number three, Diane points out that many educators agree with him that the system is broken, but Sowell replies that they only adopt that position as a way of getting more money spent on education and not because they truly want to fix the problems. Let's hear the next clip.
1: Talk about the social phenomenon you call affective education and how it plays into this whole uh, question of just how good schools are.
0: A great deal of time and energy uh, are spent on things which are non-academic subjects, which are essentially psychological kinds of subjects, uh, exercises. And this is known as affective education, as if you can somehow educate people's feelings rather than to educate their intellect. And the problem is that uh, most public school teachers have no such qualifications, if anyone has such qualifications. But certainly they are not psychiatrists or psychiatr- psychologists. Uh, they have no idea of the emo- emotional turmoil they may be stirring up uh, in the students. And there's some evidence that that's, that's happening in terms of medical reactions, of vomiting, uh, signs of nerves in various uh, ways. Uh, but more than that, what they tend to do is to try to alienate the child from the parent. And I think that's the most dangerous thing. they How do. did
1: they do that?
0: Well, if you read the literature, it's just astonishing how parents are depicted in the literature as people who are hung up, who have old-fashioned ideas. Uh, one of the areas in which they do this is a sex education. But it's not sex education as such because there are a whole series of kinds of education of the uh, emotions, as they would put it. Uh, which do the same thing. And the idea is that the child is supposed to make his own decisions, and he's supposed to pick his own values on which to make those decisions. So the whole history of the human race is sort of thrown out the window, and Johnny is supposed to start and draw upon his entire eight or nine years of experience in the world uh, to decide uh, what his values ought to be.
1: It was interesting. In the uh, book, you used an example of an exchange that you had with a student uh, and I guess your question to the student was something like, um, well, what did you learn? And the response was something like, I learned that my thoughts and my feelings are valued. Yes. Uh, whereas there was no effort to speak to a fact or something learned, but rather the emphasis oh, placed yes. on feeling oh, I, and, I know, I know and the interpretation.
0: Th- that was actually Ben Stein, a reporter in Los Angeles. And he asked this graduating senior, who was considered the smartest kid in the class, "What did you, what do you know about the Vietnam War?" And he said, "The Vietnam War was when North and South Korea were fighting, and they drew a line along the thirty-eighth parallel, and so on." And uh, Ben Stein said, "Would it bother you to know that that's completely wrong?" He said, "No." And he said, "Then what you just said, that uh, it was that his feelings were valued." His but his thoughts were valued, and that was it.
1: But now, isn't that of some worth? If you do have a child who, for example, has done nothing but learn by rote, aren't you attempting to bring out the fullness of that young person and get that person to reflect and think and meditate?
0: I... If you think the confusion of the Vietnam War with the Korean War is thinking and meditating, well, then, of course, that, that, that's that's very nice. The tragedy is that these kids have no conception of thinking. And if we, we're talking about adding something as an extra along the fringes, fine. But when you see how far behind we are, behind almost every large industrial nation, or even behind Korea, for heaven's sake, Uh, you wonder what makes them think that we have the luxury of spending our time on these kinds of uh, little experiments in the classroom. Uh, Just recently, I received a letter from a high school student who wanted my opinion on a wide variety of subjects. And this was a classroom assignment. That This questionnaire was to be sent out to people. And I wrote him back that the opinions of old men like me don't matter. What matters is whether young people like you learn to think, get some knowledge, because you're going to be making these decisions long after I'm gone. And to think that people are wasting your time, having you send out these questionnaires to people you don't know, is a sign of
2: just why we're so far behind. In this clip, Sowell introduces us to the term affective education, and he contrasts this with a more traditional academic-style education. Sowell is talking about affect in the sense of an attempt to cultivate a student's emotions, using psychological techniques. Now, I don't think the term affective education is currently in vogue. I've never really heard it used before. But I think the concept is alive and well in many forms. Sowell points out that not only are teachers in no way trained to act as psychologists, but they ignore the harm this is doing to many students. My mind goes right to the many themes being promoted in schools today, from social justice campaigns to historical revisionism to gender ideology, and many of us are concerned that these attempts to lead students to a particular set of feelings is wreaking havoc on kids' emotional well-being. Sowell hits on one of the most important themes of his book, how teachers intentionally try to alienate students from their parents, and that they do this as a way of disconnecting the child from his parents' so-called old-fashioned values, so that the child can pick a whole new set of values which are more in line with the theories of modern educators. One of my favorite moments in this whole interview happens in this clip, when Diane Rame asks Sowell if trying to build up a child's self-esteem isn't a decent alternative to having the kids just learn facts by rote memory. And Sowell can't contain his laughter at the notion. That Sowell belly laugh is worth hearing one more time. (laughs) Back to the interview.
1: Talk about some of the dogmas that you feel are driving American education.
0: Well, one of the dogmas is the notion that you have to feel good about yourself. And I think nothing so epitomizes this for me as a study of mathematics given to 13-year-olds around the world. And uh, uh, Koreans came in first, Americans came in last. And one of the questions that were asked these kids was, uh, are you good at math? 23% of the Koreans said yes. Uh, Something like 68% of the Americans said yes. And so American kids felt good about themselves, but uh, they didn't know any math. Uh, Another study was done of uh, 12th graders in Japan to see if they liked math. The 12th graders in Japan dislike math more than the 12th graders in the United States. And probably for good reason, because he was probably hard at math. Uh, but the Japanese don't worry themselves about whether their 12th graders like math. They worry Or themself- feel good about That's themselves. right. They don't care. The fact is, when you come out of there, you're going to know a certain amount of stuff. And, uh, and if you don't do that, you're, you're, you know, your parents are going to be on you.
1: Is there a balance to be achieved that is helping students feel good about themselves and learn at the same time? Or is it either or, Dr. So? Uh,
0: I do not believe that there are free lunches in education or anywhere else. And it's hard work. That, uh, that's right. And I think that's, that's part of it, too. A lot of these programs are really a substitute for hard work by the teachers. I mean, when when I I think of the teachers I had, they could not have cared less whether I felt good about myself. They didn't ask me, how how did you get to school? Did you walk these 15 blocks from home? Or did you have money for the trolley? They couldn't have cared less. They wanted to make sure I had better have my homework when I got there. And it better be right.
1: Are you putting most of the responsibility here on the teachers themselves? What about the parents?
0: The parents have their responsibilities as well. On the whole, the parents, I think, turn out a lot better than the education establishment. The education establishment is very good at blaming everything on parents and seizing upon this example and that example. But the cold fact is that for a period of decades... The parents and the public have been pushing the schools to have more academic material. And the schools have been pushing in non-academic directions. And by and large, the schools have been winning. That more and more fancy fads and gimmicks have been coming into the schools. Uh, Very often people say, you know, the Catholic schools do so much better with so little money. Uh, and, And I've come to think that really I don't want to take anything from the Catholic schools. But I think the fact that they have less money may be one of the reasons why they're doing so well, because they cannot afford these expensive gimmicks and fads.
2: In this clip, Sowell goes deeper into the whole issue of self-esteem and how it is antithetical to real education and an excuse to avoid hard work. Sowell says there are no free lunches, which is a great expression which you don't hear much anymore for some reason. And it's a common theme in Sowell's work that every solution has a trade-off or a cost. Sowell explains how parents are at odds with teachers and are always pushing for more academic work, while teachers are pushing for less academic work and more affective work. He calls them fancy fads and gimmicks, and he even suggests that spending more money on education just increases the amount of these fads and gimmicks, and does nothing to improve students' academic performance. The interview continues.
1: Dr. Sell, what was your own background? Uh, Who was, if anyone, encouraging you as you were growing up? uh, Why did you get turned on to education?
3: Stay with us. We'll be right back.
4: Hey, this is Serena and Tina, hosts of No Need to Explain with the Mental Health Mamas.
3: We are parents with lived experience who are on a mission to normalize the conversation around mental health.
4: Join us as we share a bit of what we've learned along the way, help you feel less alone, and remind you to take care of yourself while also taking care of your people.
3: We elevate the voices of others on such topics as the art of holding space, parenting with PTSD, first responder mental health, and more.
4: You'll find our podcast on our website, No need to noneedtoexplainpodcast.com or wherever you're listening right now.
3: With the Mental Health Mamas, there is no need to explain.
0: Oh, I, I guess my family that um, I know when I went into the seventh grade, they make a, made a big to do about it. And I didn't understand it until they told me that no one in the family had gotten to the seventh grade before. And they thought it was marvelous.
1: You had uh, both parents in the home?
0: Uh, For part of the time until my father died. And then I had other other, other relatives as well. All but, of whom but, were not,
1: supportive of oh,
0: you. Oh, yes, and, and and pushing and whatnot. Now, of course, they, they could not take part in the educational process. They had no way of doing that. And they couldn't come to school and do all the things, you know, that the parents must get involved. It's utter nonsense. Whole generations of uh, both blacks and immigrants uh, kids had decent educations without their parents becoming involved in the school.
1: There are an awful lot of people and teachers uh, among the first and foremost who would say that the challenges facing teachers today are far more difficult and complex than those that faced Uh, your teachers when you were growing up. Such as? Such as drugs in the school, such as weapons in the school, such as kids who really don't want to learn, Mm -hmm. uh, kids who come totally unprepared to do anything else but make trouble in the classroom.
0: Yes. Yes. I mean, there
1: are those those kinds of phenomena. There have always,
0: always been tough kids. and There have always been tough neighborhoods.
1: To the extent that there are today, Dr. Maybe so-
0: maybe, maybe not, but I think, too, that part of the de- degeneration of uh, morals has been helped out by the kind of nonsense they're taught in the schools. Uh, I think there's also this sort of maudlin notion that we have to uh, keep them all together. Uh, back when I was coming along, they had dumping ground classes in schools. And if you didn't want to learn, there were places where you could go and not learn. I
1: remember those well.
0: Yes, yes. And I remember a uh, t- uh, uh, t- uh, t- time when I was going through various phases, they dumped me. I said, when, when you're ready to learn something, you can come back. You How know? were you dumped? Oh, I was, I was assigned to Chelsea Vocational School in New York. Uh, and uh, it was a total waste of time. In fact, I told the people at Chelsea Vocational School it was a total waste of time. But since since there are truancy laws, I'll be here. But I'll bring my reading matter, and so I won't waste the time totally. Uh, but the fact is that there were standards, and you can't have the position of what can we do for every single child. You know, it's a little like trying to get the drunk driver off the highway. You've got to get him off that highway before he kills somebody. Now, how he deals with his alcoholism and whatnot, that's a separate and and secondary question. But you can't have him running up and down the highway clobbering other people.
1: What about school textbooks, Dr. Sowell? What's happened there?
0: The, well, the phrase is dumbing down. Uh, One of the things I did in doing research for this book was to go back and look at the old McGuffey's readers. And I must say, you could not use those books today because people wouldn't know what all those big words meant.
1: uh, Vocabulary was really impressive. Oh,
0: whereas there was a a history book that was uh, being considered to be used as a textbook in the high school. And they told the author to take out words like spectacle and admired because those were too difficult for the students. And, of course, they used uh, much more... uh, Bigger words than that uh, for in eighth grade textbooks in and, and, and generations past.
1: And you're suggesting that the dumbing down of textbooks is part of this entire process oh, absolutely. Of, of of creating a system that's not really teaching
0: as it should. And the, and the social tragedy of it is especially hard on low-income people. You see, if you're low-income, you're either going to get a good education or you're going to stay in poverty, by and large, with, with rare exceptions people of my generation in Harlem uh... got a good education and so uh, no matter how poor they were they could always go on people very often try to be complimentary to me and say you know how wonderful it is that you came out of this background and went on to get your degrees and all this kind of business and I try to tell him, you know, that was not that unusual, that uh, uh, half a block away from me there was a guy who went on to become a psychiatrist, owned land, uh, owned land in Napa Valley, and is now living in retirement overseas while, while I'm out here trying to work for a living. Uh, in the same building that he lived in lived Harry Belafonte. Five blocks the other way was James Baldwin, you see. Uh, three blocks this way was where Colin Powell went to college at CCNY. And these are all people at the same place at the same time. And you notice that none of that—all those, pe- those people, although how different they are—they uh, all spoke impeccable English. There was none of this junk that you hear now. This being uh, lionized, this so-called black English, which the kids' parents don't speak. Uh, you know that you got a good education. Now, what you did with it was your business. <laughs>
2: This clip touches lightly on a number of important subjects, which I wish Sowell had more time to delve deeper into. The first subject he mentions, which I find absolutely fascinating, is when he says, quote, whole generations of both blacks and immigrant kids had decent educations without their parents becoming involved in the school, end quote. From my own experience, I know this to be true. When I was going to school in Queens, New York between 1972 and 1980, I don't remember my parents or any of my friends' parents ever being involved in our schooling at all. They never asked what we were working on, whether or not we did our homework, or anything else that we were doing in school. They practiced what we now call benign neglect, and they just trusted the schools to do their jobs. With absolutely no parental involvement, we were able to get high scores on the SATs, as well as on the various regents' exams in math, biology, chemistry, physics, etc. These exams were objective exams given to students all over New York City, and grade inflation was impossible. You either got a high percentage of the questions correct, or you didn't. We now live in the era of helicopter parenting, and parents feel that if they don't ride their kids all the way through their schooling, that the kids will crash and burn. Maybe this feeling parents have comes from the declining academic orientation of the schools, so that parents feel that they have to be heavily involved in their children's educations, or else it won't go well. Sowell drops another bomb on us in this clip, when he says, quote, Part of the degeneration of morals has been helped out by the kind of nonsense they're taught in the schools, end quote. Sowell is not supporting this assertion with any evidence here, but he is telling us that he thinks that affective education is leading to a degeneration of morals in society. Let's hold that thought. Another subject Sowell touches upon in this clip takes me back to episode 11, when we talked about Sowell's notion of the importance of sorting people. He talked about how schools used to have so-called dumping grounds to sort out the unmotivated students from the classroom so they don't pull down the more motivated students from learning. Surprisingly, Sowell himself was one of those problem students who had to be sorted out and was sent to a non-academic vocational school. Sowell always was a troublemaker in his own way. Sowell discusses the dumbing down of textbooks over time, And he mentions the old McGuffey's readers as a model of the level textbooks used to reach. Now, I would bet that most people listening to this podcast have never even heard of the McGuffey's readers. I have only heard of them because my wife and I homeschool our four children and we use the readers with the kids. If you have children, I highly recommend you pick up the McGuffey's series. They come in a boxed set with all seven books in the series. I'll put a link in the show notes to the books on Amazon. Just so you know, between 1836 and 1960, over 120 million copies of McGuffey's readers were sold. Their sales were second only to the Bible.
3: Stay with us, we'll be right back.
2: Are you sick of all those social media influencers telling you about all the money you could and should be making by investing in real estate? Well. We are two of those guys, but we're out here actually doing it and not just posting on Instagram. If you want to know how a real real estate investing business works, one where we are regularly buying properties at huge discounts and creating generational wealth, while also creating enough passive cash flow to not have to work a W-2 job, then you need to check out the Collecting Keys podcast with me, Mike DeHaan, and my co-host, Dan Austin. We tell the truth about running a full-time real estate investing business without any of the fluff, so you know what it really takes to make a fortune in real estate. So check out the Collecting Keys podcast, 30-minute episodes every Wednesday, on either YouTube or anywhere you download your podcast.
1: What would be the first one or two steps you would take to put American education back on track and to reach those young people who are now as turned off as they can possibly be?
0: Number one, I would have parental choice. Whether you call it a voucher, tax credit, I wouldn't, don't care what name it is or what kind of device, But some way in which parents can decide to yank their kids out of that school if it's not doing the job. Because as long as the school has a captive audience and ironclad tenure, they're going to do what they want to do. No matter what the public wants, no matter what the parents want, no matter what the taxpayers want, and no matter what the employers want.
1: Would you be in favor of uh, Bill Clinton's system of uh, choice in public schools, not simply for uh, for parochial or? Other? Well,
0: well, uh, you know, uh, it's a question of whether whether that's better than the present system. Virtually everything is better than the present system, and so therefore that, that that's but better. But the
1: present system, um, at least in its earlier uh, uh, appearance. Was what educated
0: you, Doctor? So oh, certainly, but I mean, but but, with, but it wasn't w- the present system then. But,
1: but without the kind of choice that you're talking about, I mean, you went to a neighborhood school, you did what you had to do. You, you oh, but you did have a,
0: you have a certain amount of choice within the public school. That's that's very true. But many things have happened now, so that there's no other escape hatch. In other words, right now, you have those teachers weren't unionized the way they are today.
1: Well, is that the attempt then? Is that the goal of choice, is to break the unions at the schools?
0: No, it's not to break the unions. It's to allow the parents to have an option. The great problem with education throughout is that people are not accountable. They can run those schools to indulge themselves, whether for whatever fed they like or for whatever way they like to teach, and that goes all the way through to the colleges. The professors are there to do their research. And if the students don't get in the way, they don't mind. But uh, those schools are not being run uh, as places for teaching
1: all right, so in addition to school choice, what else?
0: Oh, elimination of tenure at all levels, well, that may not be universally popular, but they've done it in England, so it can be done as long as, as long as people are rewarded just for being alive and sitting there uh, for a certain number of years, regardless of the quali- quality of work that they do, you cannot expect good quality work.
1: What about the financial factor, Doctor? So you talked about it earlier and said that uh, you know everybody keeps blaming the fact that the schools aren't doing well on lack of resources, and it's not just money that's
0: the problem. Not only is it not just money; I would even argue that the the country has been generous to a fault. Uh, you look at other countries around the world, that includes Japan, or Australia. Uh, The average American kid gets twice as much money spent on him as the average kid in New Zealand. Kids in New Zealand are doing a lot better. Uh, They're getting a lot more spent on them than was spent on the kids in my era. And they're doing much worse than the kids in my era. I mean, I had to send my daughter to a private school to get an education almost as good as I got in the public school for nothing. You know? Uh, So we have fallen very far
2: behind. In this clip, Diane asks Sowell what he would do if he were running the show. Sowell lists two things he would do. Implement a system of school choice and abolish teacher tenure at all levels. This is my least favorite clip of the interview, because I feel the conversation gets a little muddled and jumps around to too many topics. But Sowell does manage to get some basic points across, including one of his main arguments, that spending more money is not the solution to America's educational problems. The formal part of the interview is now over and Diane starts to take random callers. Here's the first call.
1: John, you're on the air.
5: Hi. Um, I go to St. John's College in Annapolis, the great book
2: school. Oh,
1: yes.
5: And I was wondering how you um, you viewed the program here and whether you thought it fit in with the, with the way you feel about education.
0: Well, you know, there is no one particular way to do education at any level. Uh, the St. John's method is, is uh, rare, but if it works for St. John's students, then, then more power to them?
6: Yes, I uh, th- thing that I, that I think is the best
5: is that uh, about about the program is the um, the use of uh, reason alone to determine um how a classroom is structured i mean it it could be seen as very unconventional and very um uh, uh, i'm I'm having a hard time uh
0: sort of Very experimental.
5: Experimental, yeah. But, uh-huh. but at the same time, it seems to be returned to a certain type of education that only existed a few hundred years ago.
0: Yes. Uh, 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 John, St. John's is at one end of the spectrum, but the other end of the spectrum are the places that are trying to be modern, where the great classics are, not, uh, are pushed aside in favor of things, that are the latest kinds of things. Uh, just recently, I went through the uh, bookstore at Stanford University mm-hmm. and looked in the political science department to see what, what books they were assigning. Not one course, had the Federalist Papers, oh. and this is, this is, this is, this is the, if, if any document can be said to explain the whole American system of government, what they were trying to do when they wrote the Constitution, this book is it, yes, sir. and they do not have it, but you can find all kinds of trendy,
2: uh, I would consider junk, uh, well, being assigned.
1: All right, John. Thanks for your call.
2: John is a student at St. John's College in Annapolis. I had never really heard of St. John's, but I look it up online, and it looks quite interesting. They provide a liberal arts education based on studying the great books, the classics. I'll put a link in the show notes to St. John's College.
1: Celeste, you're on the air.
3: Hello, Dr. Sowell. Yes. Uh, I've been a teacher for seven years, and my question is about administration in the schools. I find that um, as they talk about cutting teachers and making classrooms larger, they don't talk about cutting administration, and I don't see that the Administration within the schools and within the the larger entity, the school boards, or, or, or not the school boards per se, but the
0: boards uh, of education, uh, boards of
3: education, state those
0: departments things, of education.
3: Right, those organizations. They don't talk about cutting people there, and I think that the education is in the classroom. It's not so much in the offices.
0: Oh, oh, absolutely. On that. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. In fact, some studies have been done in New York and Milwaukee, which show that of the money that's spent, uh, less than half of it ever reaches the classroom. Uh, and in some cases, less than half of it reaches the school. It's, it maintains this enormous and growing bu- uh, bureaucracy. And that's one of the reasons why there's very little correlation
2: between the money and, and the educational performance. In this clip, a teacher named Celeste calls in to complain about the ballooning size of the educational administration. So will agrees with her. And says that this explains why more money is not the answer to America's school problems. That most of the new money just goes to increase the size of the school bureaucracy. This is one of the calls that sounds like it was made today and not 30 years ago.
5: Chad, you're on the air. Uh, yes, um. Good morning, Diane. Good morning. Um, I'd like to call to say that I agree with a point that you were making earlier, and I think that one of the problems with the public school system, while it's not without its own blame, is the lack of parental involvement. You speak of school choice, but... When you have a parent who's concerned enough to put their child in a private school, that says something about the parent's involvement in the children's education. But if you have parents that are completely uninvolved in what the children does, expects the school to do it completely by themselves, then you have a problem. I know when I was coming up in school, if I got in trouble, I had to answer to my parents, and that mm-hmm. was serious punishment. But if you have children that are not in that environment, they're going to continue to be disruptive. Children are no longer allowed to. They're very restricted in how they can discipline students.
6: Students mm-hmm. are carrying
5: weapons to school. And I'm not saying that this is universal, but these are serious problems. And for you to just write them off and say that they're not as
6: serious or that that's always been the case, I think
5: is a very broad misrepresentation. In
0: well, I think that's, a little, that's okay. a little bit that's a little bit uh, strong. Uh, the fact is that suburban middle- class schools in quiet neighborhoods have had their standards going down the fact is that SAT scores at Yale have been going down uh, so this is all over the whole society and you can't say say that this is because of one kind the, the the parents of most of the immigrant generation for example never set foot in the school all they did was send their kids there and say do what the teacher says I'm not there's no, believe me there's enough blame to go around but I think that the schools try to shirk the share of the blame uh, by saying it's the parents. Because when, when, when quality education appears, the, that's where the parents line up. I've seen cases where the parents show up the night before and, and stay overnight as if it's lining up for tickets for a rock concert or something to try to get their kids into a decent school that is teaching them something rather than the junk.
2: Chad calls in and wants to challenge Sowell about the importance of parental involvement. Chad seems to feel that this is the main problem in American education of the day. Sowell disagrees with him in this clip, and again points to the generation of immigrant parents who were never involved at all in their children's education, and yet still, those children got a good education without any parental involvement. That was my personal experience as well.
1: Carleen, you're on the air. Hello. Yes, go right ahead. Good
3: morning, morning, Diane and Dr. Sol. It's this is a very stimulating discussion and a very refreshing uh, perspective. Uh, I myself have a graduate degree and uh, went. I actually got it in the UK because I felt that American graduate schools are run rather like businesses and they were too expensive, and most of the professors are off doing book tours and things in foreign countries and careful, aren't, in careful. The, aren't in the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I've also gone to school in Africa and in and, and France. Uh, so I, I feel, while I'm not a specialist, you know, I, I've had some different perspectives. My question is um, has to do with a friend who recently went back to George Mason University. She wants to be a teacher in the public high schools, and uh, I being interested I looked at some of her class notes and a a book that she's using and uh, it has to do with the methodology of teaching in the public schools and it's something like a you know blueprint for multi-diversity cultural education or something and the book is is teaching teachers how to teach but the whole thing the book is about is how America's made up of all these different groups and how teachers have to be sensitive to all these different groups and and uh, it had all these songs like from Amish people and and uh, okay. and, I, and I excuse me, but I, I started I started thinking <clears throat> to myself. Well, this methodology obviously is reflecting what the change, the demographic changes in America, and also reflecting the culture war in America. And um, and I see personally that America is, is starting to become a kind of social Lebanon, where all these different groups are trying to get sort of a piece of yes. the action. And I thought to myself, and my I said to my friend, I tried to talk to her about this. And her biggest worry about her next exam was if she was going to have to memorize the national holidays of 15 different countries mm-hmm. so that she can be sensitive to her students. And I'm thinking, you know, mm-hmm. Dr. Soule, what does this have to do with education? Is the school supposed to be an agent of socialization in, in America? Or is it, I mean, I, I just don't understand. Sure. That kind of well, a- interesting
1: well, point, Carleen. Go ahead, Dr. Soule.
0: Tragically, this is the view of the education establishment, that that is what the school is supposed to be doing. Uh, what's so ironic is the school is failing so miserably in what they are paid to do that they should take on this role of being social philosophers. And when you think of the pitiful academic background of the people who are taking on this kind of job, you also wonder what can be going through their minds at all. Uh, it's not true that we're we're becoming a multicultural nation for the first time. Uh, this country had people who were speaking umpteen different languages probably to a greater degree 70 or 80 years ago than today. Because you had vast numbers of people. I I know people today uh, who are professors and whatnot who say, you know, we never spoke English in my home. You know? But they went on anyway. Uh, and they became bilingual, not because of a bilingual program, but because their parents spoke one thing at the home and they spoke something else at the schools.
1: But you know as well as I do, you can't turn the clock back. I mean, we seem to have moved to a different place in the society in terms of its expectations, in terms of what it will tolerate and not tolerate. There is a push towards recognition of all of these, Various groups within that make That's up our society. So so what do you do? You can't well, no, just no, say... No, I'm I, I, no, go-
0: no, no, I'm sorry. I can't agree with any of that. Uh, it is not society that is forcing these people to do this. These people have been looking for ways of evading academic work for generations.
1: Who is they? When the you say- teachers,
0: the administrators, they love anything that is non-academic. Uh, if you, There have been studies done of kids in uh, uh, schools and departments of education. They love anything that's non-academic when you get into role-playing and all this kind of thing. And I think it's perfectly understandable. You get the dregs of the academic world becoming teachers. You have education courses that repel able students from ever studying the subject, and so you've cut them off at the pass. Anyone who has any ability does not want to take these ridiculous courses in college, and of the few who are, who are hardy souls who go on and, and take it and suffer through them and become teachers, those with high ability are the first ones to drop out, and so within a very few years out of the class, you have the bottom half of the class now has tenure, and the top half is going somewhere
2: else. This call sounds like it could have been made today. The caller is complaining about the emphasis placed on multicultural education, which comes at the expense of a more traditional academic approach. Sowell agrees with her, and he says that one of the tragedies of American education is that educators feel that it is their proper role to act as social reformers. Diane Raim argues that society has become more multicultural, and therefore education has to change to accommodate that. Sowell vehemently disagrees with her on this, and he delivers a sort of knockout punch to academia. He accuses academia of looking for ways to avoid academic work. Why do they do that? According to Sowell, the answer is clear. He says flat out that the, quote, dregs of the academic world become teachers, end quote. He goes on to say that most education courses are so ridiculous that good students are repelled by them, and only the poor student can tolerate them. In other words, that an education education serves as a filter to sort out the academically talented. This is an extremely bold and hard-hitting claim, and one I'm sure public school teachers have a very hard time hearing. But is it true? Here's the next caller.
1: Good morning, Nancy. You're on the air.
4: Oh, hi. Uh, Dr. Sowell, I have such a privilege to talk to you. I've read uh, your work. I, you have great common sense. I agree with everything. You say this morning I could give examples to uh, back you up, but I'd like to give two examples, uh, recent examples, that um, that would contradict something of what you say as far as what's going on in the schools. Uh <clears throat> We have a situation uh, in, in our school, or we had when my daughter was attending local high school, of uh, a lot of uh, black children who were not achieving were... Goading and uh, criticizing and making life miserable for their fellow uh, black students yes. who were achieving—that that's a problem that the, the educational system is not really responsible for.
0: Oh, absolutely, and, and and it's a national problem, and it's an absolute disgrace. It's
4: pitiful. I asked my neighbor who was black how she uh, uh, coped with this with her own two very bright uh, daughters, and she said she told them exactly what her mother told her in the face of discrimination by whites she said you are two individuals you will go as far as you can work to go and that's how and they are achieving now the other thing is recently in um alexandria uh they, they've well evidently they had an honors program well there was a black pressure group which uh has actually uh made the honors program uh, be disbanded um I, I believe they have been successful in that because there weren't enough blacks in the honors program. And to me, they're they're cutting off their nose to spite their face. I mean, absolutely, they are they are uh, abolishing an avenue of achievement which they could attain.
0: Oh, absolutely, and I think the. The, uh, m- much of the so-called black leadership bears a terrible responsibility for pushing these kinds of ideas on these kids, that they, that they have no chance and that everything is rigged against them and so on. Of all the questions I've answered after giving lectures around the country, the one that really hit me the hardest was asked by a young black man at Marquette University. He said, uh, even though I'm graduating from Marquette very soon, what hope is there for me? Hmm. And I thought, my God, there's twice as much hope for you as for your father and ten times as much as for your grandfather. But you, you know, you've handicapped yourself so much that you may not be able to make, take advantage of the opportunities that are actually there.
2: It's interesting. Nancy starts her call by saying she wants to point out two facts which contradict what Sowell has been saying. The first item she brings up is the subject of the misbehavior of black children in the classroom. Specifically, that of underachieving black children teasing and bullying higher achieving black children as a way of holding the latter group back. Nancy is really making the point that the educational establishment is not responsible for this trend. Sowell agrees with her wholeheartedly when he says, quote, absolutely. And it's a national problem and it's an absolute disgrace. End quote. The second item Nancy mentions is that in her school district, an honors program had recently been dissolved after pressure from a black activist group, which was upset that there were not enough blacks getting into the honors program. Once again, Sowell agrees with her wholeheartedly, and he blames black leaders for propagating these destructive ideas. I was very surprised by this call, because I had no idea that 30 years ago, the issue of black representation in honors programs was already an issue that was leading to the cancellation of such programs. Today, for the exact same reasons, we are experiencing a wave of cancellations of not just honors programs, but entire honors schools, like Stuyvesant High School in New York, Boston Latin in Boston, Lowell High School in San Francisco, and 160 other academically selective public schools around the country. I'll put a link in the show notes to a recent article about this phenomenon. For some reason, the coronavirus pandemic of 2020 served as a catalyst to accelerate the cancellation of academically selective programs on the grounds that Black and Hispanic students are underrepresented there. The debate rages on decades later. Next caller.
5: Two questions. Uh, the first is that if our education, and I'm more or less of your generation, and if our education was so great and we're so smart, how is it that we have let our schools deteriorate to the point that they have? You know, we're in charge now.
3: Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm
7: Aubrey. And we're the hosts of the Allers English podcast. If
3: you're an international professional or student
7: and you want to feel more confident with your English skills like presentations in business or small talk at the office or even attending a dinner party in american culture we cover it all
3: vocabulary
4: pronunciation role plays we
3: believe in connection not perfection when it comes to learning english come learn with us look for the all ears english podcast and hit follow now
0: Well, when I don't know who we uh, are, I think I think Just that
5: generation I'm talking
0: about. Well, but you see, the problem is uh, decisions are not made by generations; they're made by organized groups. And teachers have been a very organized group since the since the 1960s. And the National Education Association is all in favor of these crazy things that have been criticized here this morning by me and by others. Uh, so that uh, they have, and in fact, that's what choice is all about. Is it about putting the parents and the taxpayers and the general public in charge and not allowing these little groups to create their own little fiefdoms where they do what they please, regardless of what the rest of us think.
5: And you're saying that these people who were so well-educated are so uh, narrow-minded in their uh, thinking that they still are willing to jeopardize the school for their own personal gain.
0: Of course. Well, then I, Professors do that at the, at the colleges across the country.
5: Well, then I, I still think that there's something missing in the education of someone who, is, um, who can make a choice like that so easily. But, but the second point is, um, you know, you're connecting a lot of things that have happened at the same time, and you're connecting, connecting them as if they're cause and effect. And, you know, we could just as easily make the argument um, that it's high-budget deficits that make the uh, educational system bad, and say that as our budget deficits have been increased, our education has deteriorated. And well, that's
0: not, not, true. It's not, it's not true. It's not true that as the deficits uh, ballooned during the 1980s, there, there was a minor uh, upturn in the, in the educational things. You know, you can say anything, but they won't necessarily accord mm-hmm. with the facts.
5: But what I'm saying is that I'm saying that about what you're saying, the fact that you have linked these things together um, and that they have happened more or less at the same time. And you can't say that, that because some, that there's a direct... Um, link from something that's happening in society this year to the education that year. These things have... A- I, have, I,
0: enough have enough I, I have not said that. I have not said that. I have not said that. I'm
1: th- saying is- Hold on, Richard. Let him, let okay. him respond. Okay.
0: I have not said that. I've traced a lot of these things over a long period of time, and I've used a lot of cross-checking in one set of information with another set of information. That's how I arrived, for example, at the conclusion that the money has very little effect. I've checked spending internationally. I've checked spending from state to state. I've checked, uh, checked spending over time. I've checked spending as a percentage of the gross national product. No matter how you look at it, the money has no effect.
2: I don't have that much to say about this call, except that he seems generally skeptical about Sowell's conclusions, and he accuses Sowell of creating sloppy cause-and-effect links between various phenomena. Sowell does a pretty good job, I think, of explaining to the caller that he really has done a great deal of empirical research into these topics, and that he's not just pulling these ideas out of a hat. I could be reading into this, but I get the sense that this caller feels personally offended by Sowell's arguments. I'm just guessing here, but is it possible the caller is a public school teacher? Next call.
6: Uh, Good morning, and I'm very pleased that you accepted my call. I'm a great admirer of Dr. Sowell. I've known about him for a long time, and I I heartily agree with virtually everything he ever writes or produces. And I would like to relay a quick story, not that he needs any, but I'd like <laughs> I'd like to relay one that will back up just about everything he's saying. All right, sir. And real quick, my background, so as you'll know, I was not born with a silver spoon in my mouth. My grandmother was illiterate. My mother, who came to this country as a teenager on a cattle boat, had a third-grade education. I'm a very proud graduate of Georgetown University and earned every cent of that education on my own. However, the story. I was in the school system of Prince George's County. My background is that of an investigator. And after retiring, I went into the school system to investigate crime. Now, there are a lot of people who don't like to hear something like that, but crime does exist in the schools. Everything that happens on the streets happens in the schools. Believe me, it does. All right. And there was a young girl... In the 12th grade, at a very prominent, I won't name the school, I'd be happy if pressed to do so, but very prominent public high school in Prince George's County, who literally could not read. She was in the 12th grade. Her favorite subject, get this, was driver's ed. She saw driver's ed as being her way to succeed in the world. She didn't attend a single class all day long but never failed to attend driver's ed. And I pointed out to someone some day that a terrible, terrible thing had been accomplished here because no one had given any thought to the fact that this little girl was going to have to take a written driver's (laughs) test, and her knowledge of English was nil.
0: I I just relay
6: that to show some of what's going on in this bit about money being needed that's garbage. I, I have done some teaching in my time on a law enforcement level. You give me a group of people who want to learn something, and I guarantee you I'll teach them quickly, and the way to do it is with discipline.
1: All right, Bob. Thanks for your call. Dr. Sowell, any comments?
0: Oh, well, that, that's absolutely the, the, the case. Uh, when I was growing up, we had no guards in the public schools. I was 42 years old before I saw a public school guard. And yet today we have national conventions of public school guards. So the deterioration is there. But a lot of it, too, is the whole permissive notion. And again, the people in the education establishment are all for the permissiveness. Uh, at the very least, you can sort out. The violent students from the other students they don't seem to want to do that
1: are you being listened to or are you simply being dismissed as part of a conservative effort to try to change the system uh deal with the fact that teachers do have the kind of control they do administrators have the kind of control they do how are you being
2: regarded
0: well, uh, not not nearly as well as I would like to be, but I'm sure that's true of everybody. Uh but I think that a lot of people have to fight a lot of battles on a lot of different fronts at the same time for 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 a victory to ever come, and that's true in a war, it's true in all kinds of uh, things. Uh, just think how long it took for the Civil Rights Movement to achieve some of its goals. How many people we'll ne- we've never heard of went out there and sacrificed in order that they could do that? On almost every other movement in the history of the country it's taken that.
1: But it does make you wonder, um, considering how far down... American students have gone, yes. and how concerned people are about the education system, whether somebody is not finally going to say, "Maybe Soul has a point.:
0: Well, it's not a question of whether I have a point. There are great numbers of other people out there fighting in different ways, and somehow or other, the to- grand total of all that may have some impact.
2: Bob is one of those great callers from yesteryear who can't fail to put a grin on your face while listening to him talk: Yes. These days it's possible to graduate from high school illiterate, which is sad and scary at the same time. In my opinion, what gets far less attention is all the people who graduate high school innumerate, which can be just as dangerous for society, because innumerate people will believe any piece of nonsense even when simple statistics refute it. Sowell attributes the root cause of this problem to be the permissiveness promoted by the education establishment. Sowell ends his response to this caller by saying, we have to keep fighting this battle on many fronts if we want to see things change, which I know is supposed to be an optimistic and hopeful message. But I have to admit, knowing that Sowell has been fighting this particular battle for 30 years, while things still seem to be getting progressively worse in education, doesn't leave me feeling that particularly optimistic. Next caller.
3: Yes, hello. Um, at a time when we look for integrity in our leaders, one of the things that distresses me most as a parent of three children in school who are taking a pretty challenging um, course load and uh, is the amount of cheating that goes on. What do you think about it, and what would you do? Um,
1: I'll just hang up and listen. All right. Thanks, Bobby.
0: Well, the data indicate that the amount of teaching has also gone up tremendously uh, over the years. Again, another sign of the moral degeneration. What has to be done about it is that you have to make it uh, more of a... Uh, you have to, that the student has more to lose by cheating than to gain. And again, many people in education are not prepared to do that.
1: But that's part of the whole disciplinary issue, isn't it?
0: That's right, but, a lot, of, but a lot of that is within the control of the schools. For example, the you know... At, at mo at many schools and probably most schools, a professor who discovers a student cheating, really, if he if he himself simply flunks a student, that's probably all, the most he can do. Because if he brings a charge, it's going to be so due processed, you know, that you're going to be devoting yourself to this one case for untold months uh, with people looking for an out. Some way, all all along.
1: But there are others who might say, "Well, if you flunk that child, you may put an end to at least a half-hearted attempt to stay in school."
0: Well, that, that's that's a lovely thought. Uh, again, there are no there are no, there are, you know there are no free lunches, uh, and if there are people out there who suffer some bad consequences from their own actions, that will not that will certainly at the very least uh, give other people something to think about. Uh, I can remember when I was in college, there was a young playboy. Quite wealthy, uh, who led, led a qu- quite good life and didn't have enough time for his academics. And uh, one Friday he came home and there was a note from the administration that said, uh, "Dear Mr. X, uh, uh, please uh, ha- remove your belongings from the room over the weekend as we have assigned another student there Monday morning." Yours truly. And uh, my roommate and I had planned to have some play some ping pong that evening, but we stayed home and, uh, and, and and did some studying.
1: What a signal!
2: Lobby calls in to ask about cheating in school. Sowell says that data shows that cheating in school is on the rise, and he attributes this once again to permissiveness in the education establishment. He then makes the case that the best way to reduce cheating is by flunking students who get caught, thereby sending a signal to everyone else. A classic deterrent strategy, which makes perfect sense to me. Is there anyone who disagrees with this? Next caller.
7: Oh, good morning. Dan. Morning. So it's it's really a pleasure, and I'm a little nervous, so I'll have uh, two quick questions, and then I like to hang up and listen. All right, sir. I recently finished a very good book by Rush Limbaugh called The Way Things Ought to Be, and in that book he has a chapter on education, and one of them was uh, like a cultural demonstration at Stanford attended by, uh, I think it was Jesse Jackson, where the, the slogan was, Hey, hey, ho, ho, Western culture's got to go. And uh, when I read that, it, it had me thinking about the whole issue of political correctness on campus, like... Uh, Condom distributions and uh, books in New York City that have Heather has two mommies and things like that. My question is really, uh, what do you think, uh, Doctor Soule, about the the issue of PC on uh, in schools, especially the the junior schools? And uh, the second one is, uh, if if school choice does not come through with the new Democratic administration, what do you think about homeschooling? And I'll hang up and listen.
1: All right, Ted, Thanks.
0: Homeschooling is a, is, a, is a desperate expedient. Um, uh, I would have thought I would have thought it would be quite rare, and yet uh, as time goes on, I have acquired more and more respect for people who homeschool their children rather than to send them into the junk that's out there in the public schools.
1: And the numbers are growing.
0: The, the numbers are growing. Uh, I've run into people who homeschool their kids, uh, and I wish that I could have uh, could have done that.
1: Mm. And what about his earlier point on PC in schools?
0: Oh well, Stanford, of course. I mean, the uh, uh, people who wanted Western civilization to go are uh, getting their wish at Stanford.
1: Well, but what's your own reaction?
0: I think it's I think it's insanity. There's no way, the, uh, you know, we live in western civilization. That's why you ought to study it. Now, if you have time left over to study other things, fine. But to talk about why do we study Western civilization rather than other civilizations, you might as well ask, why do we study the Earth instead of other planets and other galaxies?
1: But don't you, as an African-American, believe that in some way, perhaps some of your own heritage has been left out of that kind of uh, study of uh, purely Western civilization?
0: I, I really wonder how many people here can trace back their ancestry to a particular part of Africa, which is itself... One of the most multicultural uh, areas of the world, uh, and 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 if, even if I could tell where my ancestors came from, uh, it would probably be radically different from the way it is three hundred miles away from that particular spot.
1: But that's not big. So you, the and
0: no, but the point is, you have the twenty-four hour day, and so there are no free lunches. And if if you're going to try to spread the students even thinner than they are and pretend to study these civilizations, because in order to study them, you have to have scholars who've done the scholarship and the work. I mean, you can't conjure these things up out of thin air because Jesse Jackson is chanting and it's going to take you. See, I, I've, I've spent 10 years writing a book on race and culture, which is not not it's still in manuscript. And so I know that if you're going to do this seriously and responsibly, you cannot do it overnight. And if you're going to have not simply me, but what you really need dozens of people doing this all around, you're talking about something somewhere in the middle of the 21st century. But if you're going to have these little, uh, little tidbits of nonsense, Carefully selected, uh, uh, tendentiously selected in most cases. Then, of course, you're not talking about education; you're talking about propaganda.
1: But, Doctor, so go back to what you said earlier about the small steps uh, that had to have been taken during the civil rights movement in order to achieve what has been achieved now. Can't the same be applied? Sir, so
0: I am all for people taking those small steps to learn these things in the in, in the and the postgraduate schools for scholars to study these things, so they'll know what they're talking about. And so they won't be selling Kwanzaa as some kind of African uh, uh,
2: uh, tradition when, in fact, it originated in Los Angeles. This is a great call because it brings up two really interesting topics. Homeschooling and the trend of criticizing Western civilization. Sowell seems to have changed his mind over time about homeschooling, at first thinking it would be a rare, desperate expedient, but over time, warming up to it. He says, quote, As time goes on, I have acquired more and more respect for people who homeschool their children rather than to send them out into the junk that is out there in the public schools. Quote. When it comes to diminishing the study of Western civilization in schools, Sowell thinks it is pure insanity. Diane challenges him on this, however, and he then takes the conversation in an unexpected direction by pointing out two things. One, is that there are only so many hours in the day and that studying other cultures takes time away from studying our own culture. He also says that the scholarship just isn't there to properly and responsibly study those other cultures beyond just propagandizing about them. He gives the example of the made-up holiday of Kwanzaa, which originated in Los Angeles, but is marketed as if it were some long-lost tradition from Africa. This is another one of those classic soul moments where you can never predict how he is going to answer a question, and you always end up smiling and laughing.
3: Hi, yes, I was driving in my car and unfortunately don't have a car phone, but I took exceptions to something um, that was discussed regarding that um, being offered these touchy-feely classes. Um, I am not in that 25% learning style that is pure academic. I'm a very bright person, but I do not do well in an academic setting. Um, I think that adding some of these touchy-feely and interactive classes, I mean, I got through a chemistry class because I had an um, instructor who saw that, you know, the book was hard for me, so the lab part was the part I could excel in. I think this is very important to, you know, not all of us are book learners. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
7: Hey, listen, I know you think it may be impossible to have this, but you deserve your freedom. The ability to do what you want, when you want, with who you want every single day. If that got your attention, then I just may be the voice for your next podcast binging experience. Hi, my name is Brian Lubin, and I am the host of the Action Academy podcast. I was able to hit financial independence and retire from corporate America for good at the age of 27. I did this only because of the help of my millionaire mentors, and that's what my show is. Five days a week, I interview multimillionaire entrepreneurs and ask them the mindsets, methods, and actionable steps they took to earn their freedom. Let's earn yours back, too. Talk
0: soon. Well, you know, uh, I I I could say that I also have a high opinion of myself. And, I, and I'm, not, I'm not very good at dancing, but I really don't think that ballet schools should be adjusted to take to, uh, for people like me. People like me shouldn't be in ballet. Uh, and the school has, and, the, and the, you have to realize too that uh, it's not a question of what you like or what you're good at. There are requirements in the world that if you're going to build bridges across the river, you have to know a certain amount of math. If you don't want those cars to, to fall into the river as the, as the bridge collapses under them. Uh, and if you want doctors who can cure people, you're going to have, pe- have to have people who know chemistry, whether they like it or not. So we don't have the option of just doing whatever happens to f- feel good to us.
2: I call this lady Carphone Lady because she takes me back to the days of my youth talking on a princess rotary phone with the cord stretched all the way down the hallway so I could talk to my friends in my room with the door closed. This is one of the best calls of the show because Soul shows absolutely no mercy to this poor caller who is trying to make the case that she has a different kind of intelligence that doesn't show up on academic style exams. Sowell was having none of it. Instant classic.
3: Um, Hello, Dr. Sowell. You have a very interesting uh, program. Um, However, I find myself um, almost emotional because of the way... um, you seem to approach. My question is this, what about the children um, from the dysfunctional families who don't have a recourse, I'm talking about the young minds who can't make decisions as to whether they have a place to study or or as to whether they uh, can go on uh, to uh, learn to read because they don't have the help at home. Uh, Can you address that issue?
0: Absolutely. That, That is a tragic situation regardless of how the education system is running. But what you've said tells me absolutely nothing about why the present mess is better for that child any more than it's better for any other child in more fortunate circumstances.
2: Hmm, interesting. The only thing I could say about this caller is that her question is almost completely unintelligible. And I think Sowell does a pretty good job of answering the unanswerable. Next. Hello,
7: Diane. Hi there. Dr. Sowell, I appreciate what you have to say. I, myself, am a graduate of a Jesuit high school in uh, Milwaukee, a graduate of Georgetown University, and I teach in a local Jesuit high school here in D.C. And uh, I'm of the view that it's possible to uh, focus on academics and make sure that students are learning how to learn, but also outside of the classroom, uh, as in our retreat program at Gonzaga, which is where I teach, to uh, have the kids come in touch with uh, themselves and their values as people. And we also require that students do 40 hours of community service where they also come in contact with people of different backgrounds. But that isn't at the expense of uh, de-emphasizing uh, academics.
0: Well, uh, do you have a longer than 24 hour day at that high school?
7: Well, the thing is we are stretched pretty thin. We do uh, we do really push pretty hard to uh, to do all of that. But we manage to do it and, you know, I think I'm correct in saying we're probably one of the better high schools in the area.
1: Do you have some concerns about community service programs, Dr. Yes,
0: uh, because what is a service and a disservice depends on the person who's looking at it. Many of the things that are called community services, I consider a great community disservice. Uh, if you look at the Stanford, on the Stanford campus, we have a uh, bicycle shop that I think performs a community service. And next door to it is the community service building, which I think does an incredible amount of mischief in the world. So uh, the notion that some little group of elites will decide what is a service and a disservice, and that they will then uh, force uh, and cajole other people to do those kinds of things, uh, strikes me as an abuse of authority. Well, we're a
7: private school, sir, and the uh, the students who attend our school do so at choice, or their parents' choice. Fine, so to speak. Fine, fine. And uh, they're aware of, these, of the service requirement when they do it. Uh, they do things like tutor kids from a local housing project or some quarter, which is right next mm-hmm. door. They work in soup kitchens. Um, and uh, along with that, since it is a, a Jesuit Catholic school, we have uh, theology classes in mm-hmm. uh, social justice where we'll study uh, justice theories of people like John Rawls, and we'll
0: go back oh, to Well I, I, must, I must tell you in all honesty, I really do not see high school students studying John Rawls. Wouldn't I think the not. graduate students at Harvard might study John Rawls, but I, th- I, I just really wonder if people aren't kidding themselves uh, and getting these kids to get into something like John Rawls.
2: When Sowell asks this high school teacher if they have a longer than 24-hour day at your high school, I literally started laughing out loud. This was a great last caller because Sowell showed him no mercy either. You would think Sowell would take it easy on a teacher from a Jesuit school. Sowell jumped in with two key points here. Number one, he talked about the whole notion of so-called community service. And Sowell makes the argument that a lot of what people call that is really doing a disservice to the community. This is a fascinating subject in and of itself and I could easily see devoting an entire podcast episode to it. Let's just say for now that community service versus disservice lay in the eyes of the beholder, and that just because you call something a community service doesn't mean it's actually benefiting the community. Number two, when the teacher mentioned that he teaches social justice using the books of John Rawls, that really triggered Zoel, to use a farcical phrase of our times, into interrupting the caller. I know from reading Sowell's 2010 Intellectuals and Society that he's not a huge fan of Rawls. But instead of criticizing Rawls' ideas directly, Sowell merely mentioned that the material was way too complex for high school students to grapple with. I read a little bit of Rawls in college, and I agree with Sowell on this point.
1: Dr. Sowell, is the uh, situation going to get even worse before it starts getting better?
0: Absolutely. Uh, I see no sign that, certainly the present administration, uh, if if they do introduce choice into the public schools, that will be a step in the right direction. And maybe some later administration can then extend it further. But uh, they are so in hoc to the National Education Association that nothing will be done that will disturb the people down at the NEA.
1: Dr. Thomas Sowell of the Hoover Institution, his new book is called Inside American Education, The Decline, The Deception the dogmas. Thanks for being here.
2: Thank you very much. So that was the entire interview with Sowell from 1993. I hope you found my commentary useful and somewhat entertaining. In our next episode, I'll be presenting a summary of the book Sowell was promoting in this interview Inside American Education. I'll also be talking with a well-known teacher about Sowell's book, and how well or poorly Sowell's ideas fit in with his experiences teaching high school history. Before I sign off for today, I just want to remind our listeners that I still have the world-famous Thomas Sowell Post-It Notepads in stock. Each pad has 50 different Sowell quotes to stick around the house as a daily inspiration, or as a way to introduce your friends and family to Sowell's ideas. We are offering listeners one pad for free. No catch, no gimmicks. There's a link in the show notes where you can find images of the 50 quotes so you know what you're getting before you request it. Feel free to download the digital images and use them however you like. To get your free pad of printed post-it notes, just email your physical mailing address to woolenallen at gmail.com. And please put the word soul in the subject line. Oh, one more thing. It really helps the podcast if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Give us the number of stars you think we deserve and say a few words about the show. The more people rate and review us, the more other people can find the show in the vast sea of other podcasts. Thanks in advance for doing that. I'm Alan Woolen. And this has been episode 14 of the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Thanks for listening.